Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. Welcome to Forum from KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. During a time of protests and civil unrest, many Americans are calling for an end to institutional racism. But what does that mean? In her new book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Isabel Wilkerson argues that American society formed around a deep-seated race-based caste system that is so ingrained many people don't notice it. Wilkerson spent years researching how caste works in America, as well as India's 3,000-year-old system and the one used in Nazi Germany. Wilkerson joins Forum to discuss her book and how America's past relates to its future. That's all next. Join us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. In her new book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Isabel Wilkerson presents an examination of what she sees as America's often disguised but very real caste system. The book compares America's system with those in India and Nazi Germany and delves into how America betrays its ideals of meritocracy by instead cultivating an insidious hierarchy based on race. Cast is a much-anticipated follow-up to Wilkerson's 2011 book, The Warmth of Other Suns, which detailed the decades-long migration of black people from the South to other regions of the country. And we welcome Isabel Wilkerson back to the Forum program. Good morning. Oh, thank you for having me. Glad to have you. And you may remember I was an open admirer of The Warmth of Other Suns, and I thought uh, this is no sophomore jinx, uh, the old notion that a second book doesn't quite measure up to a first, particularly when it wins a Pulitzer. This is a remarkable book, and let me first give you kudos on it and warm congratulations because the book is so well-researched and the story's well-told, and there's poetry in it as well. But let's begin by talking about caste, and particularly caste as a kind of, well, as you describe it and as you do, your research uh, pretty much brings out, um, it's an artificial hierarchy, and it's an artificial hierarchy that's based on something else that's artificial, and that's race and racial distinctions. Yes, it is. I'd like to preface it by saying that this book rose out of the warmth of other suns in which uh, I'm describing, as you said, you know, the flight of, of six million African-Americans from the South to the rest of the country. Uh, and I did not use the term racism to describe what they were fleeing. Uh, that is where I started to use the word caste. Uh, caste became more uh, comprehensive a way of describing the world that they were living in, the artificial hierarchy into which they were born, in which everything that you could and could not do was based upon what you looked like in that rigid hierarchy in which you, uh, there, were, there were laws about whether a person could even play checkers with a person of a different race. It was against the law to do that. Uh, there were separate Bibles, a black Bible and a white Bible to swear to tell the truth on in court. So I described that, uh, that era of, of Jim Crow as a caste system, and that's what led to this book. Yeah, they are connected, and I can certainly see that connection. And I want to get into what you have drawn out here and what you fleshed out. But let's talk first about some of the metaphors you use, because I talked about the poetry in the book. You begin early on with the idea that there's, well, specifically, you take us to Siberia, anthrax from permafrost, uh, which is reactivated uh, and has all kinds of human pathogens in it. It never really died, and you connect that to really the rise of Donald Trump, but also you take us into the idea of an old house filled with toxins. In other words, uh, what you see as caste is something that just doesn't go away. It sometimes can be somewhat dormant, but it's always there. Well, I, I, I make a comparison, a metaphor of our country being like an old house. And if you have an old house, you know that the work is never done. You know that as soon as you finish one thing, there's something else that crops up. And when there's rain that, that occurs, uh, you often don't want to go into the basement to see what the rains have brought. But if you don't go into that basement to see what is going on uh, in that space, then you are doing it at your own peril. And that whatever is there will be there to, uh, to haunt you, to be addressed until you face up to it. It will not go away until we uh, address these things. And we have seen uh, in recent months, as we, also know, as we all know so very well, uh, the many sh uh, indicators of, of rupture and disruption 
and upheaval in, in our country, which means that this is a time where we, uh, that calls for deep soul searching and, and, a, and a reckoning, uh, a, a true uh, reckoning with our history, our country's history. So caste is uh, not only a reckoning with history, but it's like you liken it to a cancer that goes into remission sometimes, but only returns. And you say that it's uh, what determines standing and respect and assumptions of beauty competition. In other words, it covers so much. It decides who gets benefit of the doubt and who gets access to resources. It is really central to rankings and to divisions, our discontents, if you will. Yes, uh, the subtitle is really central. I mean, it's the origins of our discontents. It's trying to understand the origins of the divisions that we live with, uh, that, as you said, uh, will surge and then recede and then surge and then recede. And so uh, my definition of a caste system is caste is an artificial hierarchy uh, with graded ranking of human value in a society that, as you so uh, perfectly said, uh, determines standing and respect, benefit of the doubt, um, access to resources, uh, assumptions of competence, all of these things through no fault or action of one's own, merely being born into a category that that is connected to assumptions and stereotypes that might elevate or demean through no fault of anyone uh, of us alive today in terms of the creation of the hierarchy that we've inherited. We've inherited the assumptions and the stereotypes. We've inherited the artificial hierarchy that, that began with, uh, with the time of the founding, the, the, of the founding and the, actually I should say the, the colonizing of, of this country uh, where there were people brought in from outside, uh, people brought from Africa to be enslaved, people who would by definition be relegated to the bottom of the hierarchy that emerged. And those who were the colonists, of course, would position themselves were by definition at the top of it. And so it created a bipolar uh, hierarchy that has ramifications uh, for us to this day that set in motion the graded ranking of human value uh, that, that came at the very beginning. So it goes back to 1619 and European Americans on top and staying on top and African Americans as, slave on the as slaves on the bottom. Yes, and in fact, it's a reminder that even the idea of race, the concept of race is a fairly new one in human history, that it only dates back to uh, about 500 years ago with the expansion and exploration of, of the world uh, by Europeans who upon uh, encountering people who were different from themselves um, began to conceptualize ways of seeing people differently uh, from themselves. And then of course, in, in uh, coming to what is now uh, the new, what was viewed then as a new world, uh, br bringing with them uh, people who look different from themselves to uh, to be enslaved and thus creating this creating race as a dividing measure uh, of, of a hierarchy you know a hierarchy such as the caste system can operate uh, with many different tools to enforce it many different metrics or measures of difference so it could have been in some cases it's religion in some cases it's uh, ethnic origin um, it could be anything I mean in the book I even say that that uh, this arbitrary, uh, artificial designation of who should be where could have easily have been height even, which is a, which is a, uh, a characteristic that is, uh, primarily connected to one's, uh, to one's genetic inheritance from one's forebears. That could have been used as a measure of value and importance and dominance and subordination. But in this metric of hierarchy, race became the signal, the cue, the tool, the signifier of where one where one is assigned in the caste system. That's how it was conceived originally, and we live with the ramifications of that to this day. Or as you describe it, the infrastructure of our divisions. <laughs> We're talking with Isabel Wilkerson, author of Caste, The Origins of Our Discontents, and also the author of The Warmth of Other Sons. And uh, there are really three caste systems that you focus on in your book that all rely on stigmatizing the other as inferior and uh, there are certainly other arguments for other caste systems, but you really talk about India and you talk about Nazi Germany. And one of the fascinating things uh, that probably many listeners aren't aware of is the influence uh, of, well, Jim Crow and separation of the races on, and eugenics specifically on Nazi Germany. Let's talk about that. I was absolutely stunned. I mean, I, I actually uh, uh, looked at Germany. I was propelled to Germany after Charlottesville. Um, when you went there, we saw before our, our eyes the fusing of Confederate and Nazi symbolism among the ralliers. They are the ones that made this connection uh, as they were 
protesting the potential removal of a statue of Robert E. Lee in Charlottesville. So that before our eyes was a battle over memory, memory of the Civil War, memory of slavery, and, and how, we, how we were to uh, look at our history how it was being absorbed by them. And so they made that connection and that forced me to have to think about what could we learn? How had Germany worked in the decades after the war to reconcile its history? What had they done uh, in understanding and in trying to uh, atone for what had happened? And so, the, but it turned out that the deeper that I searched and the longer that I looked, I discovered these connections that I never ever would have imagined that German eugenicists were in continuing dialogue with American eugenicists in the years and decades leading up to, uh, to the Third Reich, that books by American eugenicists were big sellers in Germany in the years leading up to the Third Reich. And of course, the Nazis needed no one to teach them how to hate. But what they did was they actually, the Nazis actually sent researchers to study America's Jim Crow laws to see how the Americans had, had subjugated African-Americans. And they actually debated and consulted American law as they devised what would become the Nuremberg laws. Uh, it was just shocking and wrenching to, to, to see this, to discover this. There's much in your book that's shocking and wrenching, but there's also, and I wanna at least focus on this for the moment, uh, a good deal of hope, and it comes early when you write about Nazis. You write about all the Nazis saluting, but one man in the crowd, uh, August Lahnmesser, who does not salute and who was an Aryan and a member of the Nazi party, but who saw Jews as human beings as opposed to people who should be put in ovens or in Cyclone B under the showers uh, and eliminated or totally annihilated. Um, that sense of hope and that sense uh, comes through in some of the stories you tell, and I want to talk about them with you as well um, as getting into the, the caste system, because I think you hold out the possibility of radical empathy and really constructing something aside from or deconstructing and disseminating and for that matter, destroying the caste idea. Let me go back though for a moment to the caste system as you present it to us, because um, I'm struck also by a couple of things. When, when you write about India, you're writing about a caste system that's, that's tied to Hinduism and to uh, the Dalits or the outcasts, uh, the pariahs, so to speak. Uh, it's hierarchical as well. And in America, civilization and our discontents, that is American civilization, uh, echoing Freud here, um, there's a sense that you pretty much give us um, that ties in with Calvinism, ties in with the other being sort of pagans that have to be lifted up and burdened, not eliminated, not, uh, in other words, uh, destroyed, but really uh, taken into, uh, from their inferior position to something that could not dehumanize them? That's an interesting connection that you make because it reminds me of the of the origins of of the 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 categorization that began with the colonists that actually that, that were focused more on heathenism among the indigenous people that they found the presumed heathenism from the perspective of the colonists who who deemed others to be heathen not that they were and that also used that as a way of of first delineating what we now know as race they they found they they identified uh, and chose to see people who would ultimately be enslaved and justified the early enslavement as, as a basis of heathenism and not what we now know as race, which is all a reminder that these are artificial constructions, uh, that these were creations, that these were, this was a sh uh, these were shifts and adjustments that were being made in order to justify uh, basically a system that was, that was relying on the cheapest labor possible to build the country. So to your point, uh, which is such a great point, is that heathenism was the first effort, the first go-to uh, distinction that was made, and then then race came afterward, very very shortly after thereafter. And so, uh, to speaking speaking of the the Indian caste system, the originating oldest uh, caste system uh, that that we would know about, the easily the most instantly recognizable one, is one that has the four main varnas and then thousands of subcastes within that system. And yes, at the very bottom of that ranking. It would be the outcasts, the people who were then before known as untouchables and now known as Dalits, people whose very whose very touch could be viewed as polluting uh, in that caste system. And interestingly enough, 
Uh, there are many, many differences between these countries. There are vast, vast differences in these countries. No one is saying that these these hierarchies are the same, but the but the parallels and the, the ways that they overlap can be fascinating. One of them is that the idea of touch being polluting, uh, the touch of the of the subordinated caste, a subordinated person, uh, to person a person who is viewed as more dominant caste or the upper caste, that that is a through line for uh, for. Uh, for people who are, uh, if you look at the history of African Americans, there was this, there was the separate Bibles. There were the separate Bibles in courtrooms throughout the South where the same sacred object, the Bible itself was segregated. There was a black Bible and an altogether separate white Bible to swear to tell the truth on in court for many, many decades during the Jim Crow caste system. And this is an example of how the very same sacred object could not be touched by hands of different groups by the hands of different races or what I would say caste. And so there's this through line and connectedness across the oceans and across time in which human beings can still have this impulse to separate, categorize, and then deem one group as pure and another group as polluting. And th those are some of the many, many, um, the many, many points of intersection uh, between these hierarchies. And I think another point of intersection is uh, is religion, as we've been saying, because the Book of Manu and Hinduism seems to support the caste system or was given as a read, credence to the caste system. And certainly the, the Bible and the Curse of Ham and all the rest of that uh, ties in here as well. But I want to talk about some of the research that you've done uh, closer to home because there's so much here, uh, particularly in light of what you said. Well, you said, I think, at one point in the book that uh, you devoured anything with caste because it lit up your neurons. And you, <laughs> uh, well, you, but you, you take us back to so much uh, here that really is, is worth mining and important to see. Uh, I, I mean, I'm talking, of course, about Gunnar Myrdal and Ashley Montague, so figures like that are well known to. Uh, but, but really, W.E.B. Du Bois uh, used, and Martin Luther King spoke of caste yeah. when he was in India. Yes, he did. He arrived in India in 1959. He wanted to see the land of, of Mohandas K. Gandhi, who had inspired uh, his nonviolent protests. And he was greeted as a celebrity, actually, most places he went because people in India had been following uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, many people felt a connection to it. And he, uh, in the course of that, uh, that trip, he went to or was taken to uh, a school uh, where uh, people who were then known as untouchables uh, were attending, uh, and so he was the, the 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 principal introduced Dr. Martin Luther King to the students, and he said, um, "Young people, I want to introduce you to a, a fellow untouchable from America." And when Dr. King heard this, it did not land easily on the ear. He was a bit peeved, actually, to be seen this way. He had been viewed as a treated as a visiting dignitary. He'd had dinner with the prime minister. He did not see himself in the language that uh, people who were there, uh, people now known as Dulles, saw him as similar to them. And he did not see that initially. But then he thought about it. He thought about uh, the people that he had been advocating for, leading in the civil rights movement, the the sheriff's dogs and the and the hoses and the, the marches and the uh, the, all the various uh, the various uh, pushback and violence, in fact, that they were being met with as they were seeking basic human rights in, in their country. And he thought about it and he said, actually, yes, I am. I am uh, an untouchable. I'm an American untouchable and every black person in the United States is an untouchable. He made that connection and he actually made uh, such a strong connection to it that he, he made that the centerpiece of, of a seminal uh, sermon that he delivered on the 4th of July in 1965, in which he related that story and he made the connection. Dr. Martin Luther King made the connection between the Indian caste system and the infrastructure of our divisions in, in America. And as I said earlier, Isabel, there certainly are sanguine moments and positive and hopeful moments in your book, uh, and certainly have some heroes as well, or heroic figures. Uh, one of them is Einstein, um, because yes. he seemed to really understand in a profound way what blacks were suffering in the country and made it no secret. Uh, but another one that I want to talk about, because we had Larry Tyon recently talking about his book, Dem Demagogue, about McCarthy, is Satchel Paige, who is actually kind of a personal hero of mine. And it gets into uh, a, a deeper kind of uh, understanding of the potential of so many African-Americans who were eliminated from or 
obviated from that kind of realizing that kind of potential because of a caste system. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of the most heartbreaking, um, you know, parts of, of the book for me. Uh, I think it should be a heartbreak for anyone who, you know, loves sports and, and, and loves excellence, really, in, in any iteration. You know, here was one of the most outstanding uh, pitchers who ever, you know, took to the mound. And for much of his career, he was not permitted to play in the majors. He did not actually finally get to the majors until he was well past what, what many people would consider retirement age, not, not until his 40s. And even then, of course, he, he did outstandingly well, especially considering um, you know, what he had had to, been up, had to go up against. But this is the price that we pay for a caste system in which we will deny ourselves perhaps the benefit of the talent of, of all of our people. Here was someone who, um, who Joe DiMaggio and so many other people looked up to, and yet they weren't able to, they themselves were not able to play uh, 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 with him or against him or up against him uh, in the majors during much of their own careers. So it was a loss to, to him personally, of course. It was a loss to, to baseball. And it was a loss to the country to not have someone who was so outstanding in what he did uh, be able to, to do what he loved. Yeah, DiMaggio said it was the best pitcher he ever faced. He, in fact, he was known to knock cigarettes out of the mouths of batters. Uh, he had that extraordinary precision, as you write about it, and, and speed that was just unrivaled. Um, yeah. But uh, I'm also struck by a story you tell, uh, a personal story, and there are a few of them in the book. The book has memoirs qualities to it, which I also found very engaging. But there's a, a, a story there about, and you had gone through a lot of personal pain, um, yeah. Uh, I mean, your husband died and and your mother had passed and you had this plumber in who said, where's the lady of the house? And, you know, unfortunately, black women have always had to deal with these kinds of things. And you write about a few of those episodes. But I want to get to the heart of this, because I think it's there's a humanity in this story. You found common cause with this plumber in mentioning mothers. I mean, yeah. there, was a, there was a human connection there. Right. I mean, he came in and he seemed like sort of what maybe Hillary Clinton would have called a deplorable, but there was a human connection. Yeah, so of course I would not use that word because I, I view uh, all human beings as, as being beautiful and having potential. Um, I though was running into uh, into some resistance from him just not wanting to to be there, not wanting to help, and I was not getting the help that I that, that should have been coming to solve this problem that I was facing. Uh, and uh, I, I had all but given up and I at a certain point uh, my instinct just said to me that he very likely did not have his mother uh, with us anymore. I just had this hunch that he didn't. And I just stopped him and I just said, um, is your mother alive? And he instantly changed from the passive disinterested, if, if, if almost um, uh, having a chip on his shoulder to one of reflection and, and, and uh, mourning. He said, no, no, uh, no, she, she passed away some time ago. I could feel the, the pain uh, in his voice and, and, in his, and in his face. And I said to him, well, I lost my mother. I just lost my mother. And I think it had only been two weeks. And, and I, I, I really need, you know, I need your help here. <laughs> and that's what. There, there was the connection. Uh, it's, a, it's a stirring and poignant story. And we're talking to Isabel Wilkerson, author of Cast. The Origins of Our Discontents, and you can join us. We invite you to do that. Our toll-free number is available. It's 866-733-6786. Please feel free to be part of the program. The number again, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email us, forum at kqed.org. You're listening to Forum on KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking with author Isabel Wilkerson, author of a new book called Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. I think uh, it's an Oprah selection, and she sent it out to 500 CEOs throughout the country, thought it was a book that they indeed should read. What are your thoughts on whether America has a caste system? You can give us a call now. We invite you to do that. Our toll-free number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you might have to forum at kqed.org. And I want to read a comment from Onisha, actually a tweet. She writes, uh, the scene from the movie The Help 
where they don't let the domestic worker use the bathroom is similar to what still happens in India, where people don't let anyone perceived to be lower caste in their home or let household workers use bathrooms, touch plates used by the family. And Angeline writes, uh, please ask Ms. Wilkerson to discuss the difference between caste and class. I appreciate there is a difference between closed and open systems, but I would welcome a further discussion for more clarification. I'm very much looking forward to this discussion. Isabel Wilkerson, class and caste? Yeah. Yes, well, I define, if you think about caste as the bones, race is the skin, and then class is like the clothes, the diction, the accents, education, the things that we can change about ourselves to lift ourselves up, or if we should lose them to fall further down uh, in, in our standing. These are the things that we can control. So one way that I describe it is if you can act your way out of it, it's class. If you cannot act your way out of it, then it's caste. And one of the examples uh, in the book is one of, uh, of uh, the actor Forrest Whitaker, who is one of our most esteemed actors. He's won uh, an Oscar, an Academy Award. And he went into uh, an upscale deli in Manhattan and went in to see if they had what he was what he was looking for. They didn't, and he turned to walk out, and he was blocked at the door and then searched. He was put on, forced onto the floor and searched by the staff uh, in front of other customers. Um, he was instantly, in that moment, uh, you know, assumed to be what the, what the stereotypes would be, uh, assumed to be uh, a, a criminal, and, uh, and forced into this, Face of, uh, of a humiliating circumstance because he was assumed to be out of his place. Uh, there was also the case of, uh, of the editor of British, British Vogue, who would have been one of the best dressed people you know, on the planet. And he went into his office building and was told by the security guard to use the freight elevator of his own building because he was seen as out of his place, no matter how well he might have dressed or was carrying himself, that there is no escaping the assumptions of where one might be located. One other way of looking at it is when you think of a cast in a play. And I became fascinated with the word cast and the many ways that, that the word cast is used in our language. And so if you think of the cast in a play with characters that all have a role to play, all have a place on the stage, stage left, stage right, in the front or in the back, and everyone knows their lines. And in fact, if they're really good, they know everyone's lines. They know the entire script and everyone acts according to that script. And if a person who's supposed to be stage left is over on stage right, everything is out of whack. And the same could be said for a way of understanding how caste is about the boundaries and assumptions about where a person should be, the locations of where they should be, where they're expected to be, where they're not expected to be, who should be expected to be on top in this location. And that's also where some of the videos that we see where people are coming in and, and saying, calling the police on, on say African-Americans in particular, for sitting in a, a Starbucks waiting for someone to, to arrive or trying to get into their own apartment building and someone blocks them because they're not seen as the type of person who should be in that in that building, no matter how well-dressed they are, because in some of these cases, people are very well-dressed and they're business people. Uh, it's, if you can act your way out of it, it's, it's, it's class. And if you cannot act your way out of it, it's caste. That's the old uh, hailing a cab in many cities. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I'm wondering, though, what do you say to the argument, because I'm sure you hear it, that uh, class is often based on wealth, or at least it's tied to wealth, and we associate it with wealth. And there are many affluent African-Americans, there are certainly, especially in popular culture and professional sports and so forth, uh, many who have succeeded in terms of great wealth. Oprah Winfrey would be a good example, too. Um, your response to the idea that there's still somewhat of a meritocracy here, that people can indeed and do succeed regardless of their skin color? Well, you know, even in the original caste system of India, there are Dalits who have been able to rise to uh, positions of, of, uh, of professional, uh, professional positions and have been able to rise to some influence. So even in the most rigidly recognizable caste system, there are exceptions to any rule. And of course, that would be the case uh, in our country, where obviously after the civil rights movement and the civil rights uh, legislation in 1964, 65, and 68, this opened up a way for people to be able to take on positions that never would have been uh, possible. So absolutely, we have made, made tremendous progress in our country. At the same time, uh, African-Americans as a group 
have uh, have experienced because of the historic deprivations, historic state-sanctioned, I should say, deprivations or exclusion from such basic things as being able to get a mortgage in order to build the American dream. You know, for African Americans, uh, the redlining meant that that uh, that that the government would only back mortgages. Uh, if they were, if these mortgages were for homes that were not in black neighborhoods, that meant that African Americans were uh, were were excluded from the most basic uh, 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 way of building wealth in this country, while their white counterparts, through no action or, or blame on on their part, this was government backed mortgages. They benefited without even necessarily wanting to or trying to, but African Americans were were excluded from this, and only in recent generations. I mean, this is very, very new when you think about the long history of our country—400 years uh, from before there was the United States of America—and only in the time since in the 1960s and within the lifespan of many people alive today, have African Americans actually had true access to being able to build something in this country to really be part of the mainstream. And on top of that, with the great wealth that you might see in uh, among a select few people um, who, whose names we know so well, even factoring them into the uh, the, the the massive uh, uh, you know uh, collective wealth of African Americans, African Americans to this day have only one tenth of the wealth of their white counterparts, largely due to the exclusion from being able to build uh, the wealth that comes from home ownership, for example, for most of the time that African Americans have been on this soil. So this is very very uh, new. This idea of people even being able to truly break free of these restrictions uh, that that still uh, that still haunt people because while you can rise in class you still have to deal with caste at any given moment any of these people could be reminded of the historic placement of people who look like them uh, in the hierarchy that 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 arose out of um, out, out of our history and let me bring a caller on we go to Aiden as our first caller Aiden welcome hi there um, thank you so much for bringing this content to us it's just incredible and um, amazing to see the intersectionality between all these systems. Um, my question for you is, what would you like to see more of from white people in the United States in regards to our caste system? Oh, well, that's a, a great and very big question. <laughs> um, I, my goal with this was to present myself, you might say, as the building inspector. I have gone in and done this research. I am providing essentially an x-ray of our country. I am presenting, uh, you know, this, these are the things that we are facing. These are things that we have jointly inherited. And my goal is to um, have us look more deeply and to know the true comprehensive history of our country. My goal would be to, uh, to spark uh, and inspire people to want to know more, to know more about our history, to know more about Jim Crow, what it truly, truly was, and that many of the things that uh, that uh, that show up as the challenges that African Americans have faced, but also other people who uh, would be uh, disadvantaged in our caste system have also endured. These things are within the lifespan of people alive today. Not enough of us really know the true and, and comprehensive history. That's one thing. And then also I would hope it would build empathy, radical empathy for, uh, for people who are in, who have been put in different circumstances, who have been, who are perceived differently without wishing to be, uh, and, and who then are often the, the target of some of the, the, uh, you know, less savory aspects of, of, our, of, 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 a, of a caste system such as ours. I would ask and hope that people would listen, listen to those whose voices have not been heard with an open heart. Uh, with a true desire to understand. One of the greatest uh, consequences, the, most, the greatest tragedy of a caste system is that people often do not get the chance to know people who they might have had incredible relationships with and had so much in common because we've been told that we are so much more different than we actually are. And so I would hope that it would be a bridge to understanding. I would hope that people would be willing to listen with an open heart and to look at it with a sense of radical empathy. Empathy is not not pity and sympathy for someone, but recognizing that this person has experienced something that I might not have experienced, not to look at it as I, as how I would respond to something that had happened, but mm -hmm. how would this person respond if they were faced with this? To try to picture what it's like not to be yourself in that situation, but someone else in that situation. That takes a lot of information, takes a lot of listening and understanding and patience and, and humility in order to do that and to do it well. 
Well, in fact, I'm looking at a quote from your book, Abiding Connections Across uh, Manufactured Divisions is a testament to the beauty of the human spirit. I, I really like that phrasing. But you're also at one point talking about, uh, well, truth and reconciliation and reparations and things along those lines. Uh, I mean, apartheid in South Africa was another kind of caste system, and they went through a whole truth and reconciliation. Uh, this would be certainly a positive step in your judgment? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of this that I'm seeking here is in is to illuminate what had not been seen. Um, I, you know, if you think about you know, the building, the old house that I'm speaking about, you know, if you don't know what's wrong with the building, then you can't be expected to to address it. But once you know, then the the responsibility then falls upon uh, anyone who is the who owns the house who, who and, and we are all the collective owners of this old house known as America. We are responsible for it once we know. And so the, this, the goal of this is to make us aware of what we could not have perhaps known otherwise. We, this is not the kind of thing that we talk about very much, even though this has been cast and the idea of cast is quite an old one among uh, philosophers and historians and um, social scientists. This is not a new word, but this is a way of, of illuminating the what we might not have otherwise seen. And I want to bring another caller on. It's Jamal joining us next. Jamal, welcome. You're on the air. Yeah, good, good morning. Um, you know, I'm a black man that was born in San Francisco, moved to the suburbs when I was six, and now I'm 62 years old. I, 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 I take offense when somebody says, caste system. My father volunteered for the Sisters of Mercy with Mother Teresa in 1988. And, you know, he told me about it, and I read a lot about it. In the Indian caste system, in, or caste system in South Africa, you have no choice. You cannot get out of it. And to say that we have a caste system in America is just a farce. As a black man, myself, my father included, you know, we're not the quote-unquote narrative that these people are trying to, 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 to flood the media with. You know, I've never, ever been stopped while driving black. I've never, ever not received a job or got a job that I applied for. It, it, I, it, I, I, the last couple months has just been insanity to paint this picture all this doom and gloom is not fair and is not right. You might say, well, this is just me, but no. Whether it be my father, whether it be my family, my extended family, we all shake our heads in disbelief on what we see as in what is being spouted by people in the media about all this. Jamal, let me get a response from Isabel Wilkerson. Thank you for the call. Isabel? I would say to Jamal that you are so very blessed, and I am so happy to know that you've not had to experience what so many of us have. And I wish you the absolute best. And I'll thank Jamal for the call. And when he was talking about his father, it reminded me of the fact, though, when we think about caste systems, your father was a Tuskegee Airman, which, by the way, Susan Rice's father was also, uh, since yes. her, her name is emerging very much now in terms of the vice presidential possibilities. Um, but just the idea of Tuskegee Airmen, I mean, who served this country with such distinction and heroism, nevertheless separate. I mean, you know, you can talk about that as doom and gloom, or you can just talk about it as something that was inbred into our system and has remained in so many ways, vestigial or otherwise, in our system. Yes, I, I was raised by two people who were survivors of the Jim Crow caste system. And of course, as you know, for the Wonka of the Sons, I interviewed over 1,200 people who also were survivors of the Jim Crow caste system who left, their, left wit, bore witness to what they had endured and what they had suffered and what they survived. And they had a sense of hopefulness. They never gave up on their country. So they decided that they would seek refuge in other parts of the country in hopes that life might be better and made something of themselves. And so many of us who are descended from that, that, that heroic, courageous decision that they made, you know, owe our education, owe our, um, our successes to the bravery that they showed and the willingness to, to, to break free of that and to always have hopefulness and, and optimism about it. And yet my father's situation, he had been a Tuskegee Airman. He was, uh, the, he was an instructor of the uh, Tuskegee Airmen and he, he, when the war was over, 
they uh, be here. We had some of the most uh, proficient um, pilots in, in the country who had all the, you know, had all proven how, how very competent and uh, out, outstanding they were. And yet when the war was over, they were not able to get jobs. They were not able to get hired uh, as pilots. There was, you know, this is one of the, the characteristics of a caste system is that, that the, that the occupations are controlled. There's an occupational pyramid about who can do what in a caste system. And of course, in the United States, people who had been enslaved uh, were limited by definition. And even during Jim Crow, there were limits. And so after the war, they, they were not able to get jobs as, as pilots, as wonderful as they were. So they all, many of them had to go back to school to start over. And, and some of them became dentists, some of them became physicians. And my father went back and became a civil engineer. So they had to they were deprived of the opportunity to do what they loved and what they were so good at and made, remade themselves, never giving up on the country, never giving up on whatever talents that they had, heartbreakingly having to see other people being able to do what they loved and they, they made a way out of it. So I am literally uh, the, the daughter of a builder of bridges. He was a civil engineer and that's what he did for a living. He built bridges and that is what I seek to do in everything that I write. That's what you're doing. I think you'd be very proud of you. Both your parents would be. Just wondering, though, uh, we talked about this when you were on the forum program uh, discussing your last book, and that is the difference between North and South uh, and the Mason-Dixon line. To a great extent, you seem to, at least at that point, uh, be drawn to the idea that uh, Jim Crow notwithstanding, the idea of separation, segregation in different forms, and now what you're calling a caste system, migrated north along with all those who sought to migrate and find sanctioned jobs, whatever, in the north. And yet in many people's minds, uh, the north and the south never the twain. I mean, there was a civil war because of the differences that existed, and there's still certainly some major differences that are, well, part of the legacy we're talking about with Jim Crow. Well, the, the thing is that when we look at the you know, the, the consequences of that great migration upon arrival, as you said, there were there was resistance uh, to their arrival. Uh, they they met pushback upon arrival, and they had to bear up against that hostility, open hostility. Sometimes that you know some of the race riots, the race riots of 1919, uh, occurred at the end of the first decade of the Great Migration. So there, there was a tremendous amount of pushback and hostility that they faced. And uh, what what that how that manifested was the redlining that I made mention of. These were uh, these were responses to the, the great migration, the arrival of African Americans who were seeking to flee one uh, in one hierarchy and then found themselves in another one. Uh, they also faced the uh, the uh, restrictive covenants that also meant that that white homeowners, even if they wanted to sell to African American homeowners, were restricted and prevented from doing so because their deeds did not allow it. So these are some of the mechanisms that were put into place upon the arrival of the, the six million uh, African Americans who stand out all over the rest of the country. And this is what happened. And thus, essentially nationalizing what had been uh, the hierarchy of the South, kind of nationalizing it in a, in a different iteration, but still having a similar effect of, of hyper, what we call hyper-segregation uh, in the big cities of the North and the West and other, uh, other uh, obviously, other challenges that people have faced. I'm getting a lot of comments and questions. Let me just read some that are coming in. Here's a tweet from Radhika who says, uh, why did we let this happen for so long? Nothing that we learned in school helped to unlearn such obvious societal discrimination. My generation grew up with the same colonial mindset. Now I have to rethink everything I do. Too late? I think that's a rhetorical question. Um, and here's James who asks, is it true that the victims of a caste-based society also buy into their inferiority uh, on a large scale? You may be familiar, uh, Isabel, with a book by Greer and Cobbs, which pretty much takes that point of view, a couple of black psychiatrists. Uh, is this sense of internalizing the caste system something that you would observe or would talk about? Oh, absolutely. Uh, in a caste system, everyone receives the messaging about what the hierarchy is about you know, who has the greatest influence and assumption of competence, benefit of the doubt, respect and standing. Uh, there are so many factors that can also come in uh, and intersect with 
the bipolar uh, infrastructure that I'm describing, but there's gender, uh, there's, uh, there's immigrant status, there's ethnicity, where, you know, there are, there are uh, gradations even within each caste, you know, where do people who are from one part of Europe uh, fit compared to people from another part of Europe, which all gets back to, you know, immigration restrictions or speaks to the immigration restrictions that occurred in, in 1924 and other parts, other times of our country's history. So it's very, very complicated uh, to to think about the many ways that this is is parsed, and and so I would say that uh, that one of the things because the messaging goes to everyone about who fits where, who's expected to be where, then everyone has absorbed the messaging to such a degree that unconscious bias, which could be seen as one measure of how deeply someone has absorbed the messaging of the hierarchy um, and without wanting to, I mean, this is not, this is not conscious. These are unconscious um, inputs, you might say, programming that we all have been exposed to. That, um, that the thinking is that the unconscious bias studies have found that between 70 to 80 uh, percent of white Americans might have have absorbed some of this messaging, and it wouldn't be surprising because it's billboards, commercials, television shows uh, that that you know casts that have uh, that sh that that have the the black person or the marginalized person literally marginalized in the script, or who dies first in a movie. All of these inputs that we receive that are not, no one has to sit you down and say uh, where, who fits where, but that messaging is so uh, so uh, powerful that one third of African Americans also have absorbed the same messaging of the unconscious bias against themselves. So everyone is affected in, in a hierarchy, uh, artificial hierarchy that ranks people uh, on their value without our even thinking about it or, or having to be told explicitly of it. Talking again with Isabel Wilkerson, who is the author of Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, and also the Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Warmth of Other Suns. I'm going to read a few more of your comments. Nazario writes, I just imagine having to fill out a census document where the question is, what caste are you? The awkward <laughs> feeling that phrase conjures highlights how far off we are from a post-racial world. And Shannon writes, this also reminds me of Trump demonizing and casting aside blacks and Latinos. Latinos and children are now languishing in for-profit concentration camps, their talents and abilities wasted. Same with blacks in prisons, not only the heartbreak of the inhumanity, but as Isabel pointed out, all the talents, dreams, and abilities being destroyed. So many of these people may otherwise be top artists, scientists, athletes, Nobel Prize winners, educators, singers, musicians. It makes me literally ill. And here's another caller from Oakland. Ov joins us. Good morning. Hello. Thanks for thanks for taking my call. And uh, uh, Isabel, I really enjoyed your book on the warmth of other suns. It was a masterpiece. Uh, you know, my my folks immigrated from the South to to the Midwest. Unfortunately, in this book, I really think you're in way over your head. You're out of your lane. The, the, because this idea uh, that we're, we have a caste system was debunked in sociology by a very well-known, well, he's not very well-known, by a sociologist by the name of Oliver Cox. His book is called Caste, Class, and Race. And his book came out about 60 years ago, and it's a 600-page book. It's a masterpiece in the area of so, uh, historical sociology, he totally debunks this idea that the U.S. is based on a caste uh, a system. So in your methodology relies more on, it's not, very, it's not analytical, it's not based on the solid historical sociology approach that has been used in sociologists. This idea was debunked and is not accepted by any sociologist Nowadays, if you were to submit your thesis at a graduate program at a sociology school, uh, uh, university, it would uh, probably be rejected. I'm sure it would be. Ovi, let me, let me interrupt more. here. I'd like to hear Isabel Wilkerson's response. Cash, class, well, and race is the book. Yeah, go ahead, Isabel. I, of course, I've read Dr. Cox's work. I would not ever attempt to write anything without reading. I said, you know, I've said so many times that anything that had cast on it, cast in it would, would uh, light up my neurons. So of course he was one out of many, many, many books that I read. At a certain point I was reading a book a day. That's how much I had to prepare and research for this book. Uh, there are an overwhelming uh, number of uh, sociologists and anthropologists of the 20th century who have, uh, who emerged from research of 
the Jim Crow world, the world of the Jim of Jim the Jim Crow South. Um, such people as Allison Davis, Burley Gardner, uh, Lloyd Warner, uh, uh, John Dollard, Hortense Powdermaker, a pantheon of the most uh, uh, accomplished uh, uh, anthropologists and sociologists uh, in this field at Harvard and Yale who emerged from their research with only one term to describe what was going on in our country. And they emerged with the term caste. Gunnar Myrdal, who wrote one of the most uh, uh, comprehensive works ever on the topic of race and racism in the United States, wrote many times in his two volume set, 2000 pages of, of, that he devoted to this topic. And he emerged saying that the only word, the most accurate word to describe what he had studied was the word caste. So there's a long, long history of people using the term caste to describe the artificial hierarchy of graded ranking in our country, uh, whether it's spoken of or, or not, it is the word that has been used by many, many scholars throughout our history. And there are entire uh, bodies of work uh, about this topic. There are people who, who are studying this even now. So this is actually uh, quite relevant and, and accurate. And the work that I did um, on the Warmth of the Suns in which I spent 15 years interviewing 1,200 people who, who described uh, what can only be called a, a, a hierarchy of a caste system as had the anthropologists before me. And so that is the word that is accurate to describe it. And, and I would again. only add one other, I'd only add one other thing, and that is that the people, when we say that we don't think that this is a word that's used, generally it has to do with not really being immersed in the testimony of people who survived it. Let me again commend your research. Uh, we, you take us all the way back to de Tocqueville, in fact, uh, who saw things through foreign eyes, just like Gunnar Myrdal. Uh, it's good to have you with us. Uh, again, congratulations on Pulitzer and certainly on this new book. Good luck with it, and thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Isabel Wilkerson, the book is Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. And thank you for being a part of the program for all of us here at KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. Stay safe. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.